Good morning, Grace. If I haven't met you, I'm Jason. Every now and then, uh, I, my wife and I have been here for, I think it's like 12 years now. You get to bring the word every now and then, so I'm grateful to do that. We're in Luke, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke. We're towards the end. This week, my kids in my house were asking, what were we preaching through before we were preaching Luke? And the answer was Luke. I think that must be all of their memory. I don't think I can answer that question very well either. But we're in Luke 23. We have been working our way through. But man, has it been a, it's been great for me. I hope it's been good for you as well. Before we read our passage today, uh, this passage reminds me of a story about my grandfather. And it seems random and not connected. And I'll hopefully try to connect it for you. But when I was 10 years old, my parents took my brother and me and my grandparents to our small town movie theater to watch the movie Hoosiers. It was at 10 years old that I realized that my grandfather was the kind of person that might just scream out directions during a movie. <laughs> I don't know if you recall the movie Hoosiers, but at one point in the first early game, the townspeople aren't very happy with Gene Hackman, the coach, and one of the townspersons bursts into the locker room at halftime, and my grandfather, he doesn't stand but very loudly screams, get that idiot out of there. <laughs> now, to help you understand why this is so memorable, I grew up in a very small town, one theater in the town, only two screens. And when big movies like Hoosers came through, it took like three or four months before they would get to us, first of all. And there were many people in the theater, many of which I knew. And I believe I had friends the next day at school saying, I heard your grandfather hollered out at the movie this weekend. Now, the reason I'm telling that story now is because we've worked so much through Luke, and now we're at the, this point, and it's really just, it keeps just, the, the stakes keep getting ramped up, but we're at the point where Jesus is going to be before Pilate, before Herod, back before Pilate. And there are multiple times as I was reading this and I was prepping this that I wanted to holler out directions to Jesus, give him a little advice, tell him what I wanted him to do. I, I had expectations for how I would prefer Jesus to have responded rather than the way that he responds here. Because at the end of this passage, his fate is sealed. He's going to the cross. And it doesn't seem like he puts up much of a fight. And I think I would have liked for him to have, in my flesh, we're going we're gonna to expose that, the sin of that and that. So I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. Luke 23, starting in verse 1. It was set up by Junior last week with Jesus before the council at the end of 22. Now the council is going to move forward. So Luke 23, starting in verse 1. When the whole company of them, sorry, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. 
The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, and arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent them back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserves death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said it to them, what, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. It's a sobering passage, a serious passage, one that involves multiple settings, multiple characters, the crowds involved, the councils involved, but even at the outset, there's a couple things that are striking to me. This passage, it seems different from everything we've done so far in Luke, or just about everything, in four different ways. Just to set context, as I came into this passage, the first thing I captured in my, my mind was the setting is really different. One way is that here we have Jesus sort of finally facing important people and rulers. And think about it, up until this point in Luke, he's sort of been dealing with outcasts, and I think the word that the youths today use is randos, right? Jesus has been ministering to randos up to this point. And now all of a sudden, instead of in these outposts with fishermen, with just who, the ragtag group that might have been following, here he is now in the headquarters, in front of authorities. The second way it's really different is now we see Jesus alone. Up until this point, in the entire book, he's either been, when he was young, with his family, and from the start of his ministry with his disciples, and with friends, and with crowds, and with ladies that would come along, with women that would minister to their needs. And so you have Jesus almost continually surrounded by people. But here he is, alone. The other thing you see throughout, not just Luke, but the, the Gospels is, most of the time, Jesus is talking. If you have a red-letter Bible, you just flip through the gospel. There's a lot of red words in there. He's either teaching, preaching, getting on to his disciples, answering questions, sometimes questioning back. But here, four red words in English, which are only two in the original language. Largely silent. Jesus, typically, the fourth difference is he's definitely sort of in charge of stuff, right? He's active. He's doing things. He's, he's telling the waves to be still. He's healing. And here we see a very passive Jesus. 
Up until this point, it's pretty clear Jesus is driving the bus. But here, by reading the text alone, it seems like the bus is being driven and Jesus is just sitting in the back. I think these oppositions are not accidental. I think that they are they're deliberate in the storytelling, the way that Luke is telling the story. Because that's what, that's what storytellers do. That's what the evangelists are doing. They, they, they're shaping the facts. They're editing to sh- tell the story and the emphasis that they want. And what makes this particular story sort of interesting is once we get to this part of Jesus' life, all four gospel authors are telling this story with slightly different details. So I really, as I was working through this, I really want to focus on telling the story the way that Luke is emphasizing. And I think Kenny's already pointed out perfectly, Luke's point in the story is simply, this is unjust. What's happening to Jesus is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is innocent. He's proclaimed innocent multiple times by multiple parties. But yet, he goes to the cross. That's, I think, Luke's driving point. But Luke's also point is to also, I think, suggest everyone involved is guilty except Jesus. It's not merely this is unjust and this shouldn't be happening. It's everyone who touches it in some way is also guilty. We see this, sorry, some of the details that we think of in this whole passage don't show up in Luke and some do. So let's just, just deal with this really quickly. First of all, Luke's the only evangelist that gives us the Herod part of this story. The other three Gospels, they edit that one out. Luke doesn't give us some of the details that we're accustomed to in this story. Luke doesn't give us the hand washing of Pilate. His blood's not on my hands. Luke doesn't tell us about the dream of Herod's wife. Luke doesn't tell us about, I've got a list here because I'm already, my brain's already washing hands. Matthew and Mark both tell us when it happened. It happened early in the morning. John tells us where it happened. It happened inside the headquarters. John tells us about this long conversation, long in comparison at least, with Pilate that none of the other gospel accounts give. The other gospel accounts, like Luke, only give the very few word response to Pilate's question. Barabbas is treated differently and all four Gospels slightly as well. Matthew mentions Barabbas the most times. I think he names him five times by my cursory account. Mark names Barabbas three times. Luke only names Barabbas once, refers back to him later. We'll look at that in a second. And John just kind of refers to Barabbas and says he was a robber, whereas all of the other Gospel writers make it much more clear that he was a murderer. I'm only pointing all that out to say that Luke, I think, is his unique voice is telling us by his editing of this story, this is the point that I want us to pick up on is, this is unjust, and everyone who touches the case is guilty. So let's move through it and pick this up from the hand of Luke. I want to start with Junior's passage from last week, just to start to refresh that one of the sets of characters that continues in our passage in 23 is the council. And when the council is questioning Jesus in 22, their questions are what you would expect. They're sort of spiritual or religious. Are you the Christ? Are you then the Son of God? This is sort of interesting because they said, what else do we need? 
he's guilty. We're going to now take him to Pilate. The understanding is, in one of the Gospels, they say it in John explicitly, we don't have the authority to crucify this man. Only you do. That's why they want to take him to Pilate. It's sort of interesting if you think about it. Seems like the council uh, in Acts has the authority to send Paul out to murder Christians, and somehow Stephen gets stoned. Commentators think that's probably more of a mob activity that might have had a wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, that's okay. But it wasn't like a, an official decree of the council. And the Jewish council did at times stone people, but they certainly didn't crucify people. To crucify a man, it had to go through the Roman authorities. I think that the council is important in our passage because they're there every step of the way. I don't know if you noticed when we read it, but they start with Jesus in Pilate. Pilate sends them to Herod. Where does the council go? They go. And Herod's having his questions, and it says the council stood by. And not only are they there, they're sort of accusing it. It's almost like they don't ever want to miss an opportunity to say, yes, he's guilty. He's guilty. And what's interesting is when they bring Jesus to Pilate, it feels like they slightly shade the charges against Jesus a little bit. It's a little bit less spiritual and religious and a little bit more political. So look at the first of our passages. They begin to accuse him in verse 2. We found this man, three charges against him, misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, comma, a king, <laughs> We want to make sure, Pilate, that you get this is a political challenge. This is, an, this is a challenge to Roman authority, what Jesus is trying to do. Now, remember the sermon about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. In that particular sermon, we have a perfect counterexample that the second of these charges is utterly false, that Jesus wasn't teaching the nation, forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. He was saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Of course, in their mind, he's misleading the nation, and he is claiming to be Christ, but he certainly isn't claiming to be the king in the way that Pilate would view what the king is claiming to do or to be. I think what we have here in the Jewish leaders, primarily what Luke's pointing out is their blindness to who Jesus is. They're just blind. They get something right about Jesus. They get right that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. But they don't get it completely right because they're saying, if this is the kind of Messiah that you're going to be, this ain't the kind of Messiah we're looking for. We don't want you as our Messiah. We reject you as our Messiah. So they hand him off to Pilate. Pilate very quickly asks Jesus in verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? This is where we get Jesus' very few words in the entire passage. You have said so. It's, it's two words. It's like, ah, so you say or you say. It's sort of not a full, it, it's ambiguous, right? It's not fully yes. It's not fully no. It's sort of like, ah, eh, you're going to do whatever you're going to do anyway, Pilate. They're going to do whatever they're going to do, Pilate. I find it interesting, the way Luke tells the story, is it's not much of a, of a cross-examination. Pilate seems to immediately come to the response that he's not guilty. 
You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. Pilate's probably done a lot of this. He's probably pretty good at looking into the eyes of a person, kind of getting a feel for them. His EQ is on high alert right now. Is this guy guilty? Is this guy a challenge? Is this guy a threat? And we get his first proclamation that he's not guilty. Something we're going to see Pilate do again and again, five times clearly. You could probably read a couple of others into it as well, where Pilate is the one saying he's not guilty. I don't see what the problem is. I don't even know why he's here. Chief priests say, oh, once again, they're there. They're always there to kind of keep pushing forward. Oh, well, no, he's been doing this. He's been causing this trouble. He's been stirring it up, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And that's when the magic word gets ring, Galilee. Pilate's like, Galilee? Oh, if Galilee is where this guy's from, then we can bring in the ruler of Galilee. Maybe it can make this become Herod's problem rather than my own. It seems like a classic passing the buck. I don't want to have anything to do with this. This is annoying. Matthew and Mark say it's early in the morning. Maybe he's just tired. Whatever it is, let's just get this off of here, wash my hands of it, get him to Herod. Now, I don't know about you. We're going to talk about Herod now. Herod's one of those names in the Bible that I just get confused about. Seems like all the way through the Gospels and Acts, everywhere you throw a rock, you hit a Herod, and you don't know which one is which. So I've done a little Herodology, and since I did my Herodology, I want to pass it on as quickly as I can to you. There's at least five Herods mentioned in the Gospels. One of them barely mentioned, but three, four of them mentioned regularly. And the two that are, that are talked about the most is first is Herod I, Herod the Great. This is the Herod of early Luke and of Jesus' birth. Herod I had been king of the Jews for about 30 to 40 years before Jesus' birth, and he died not too long after. So for us, on the biblical account, we, we know this Herod because he's the one who had the baby boys slaughtered in Bethlehem. He was a great builder. He brought in Italian architecture, sort of prided himself on you know, I'm going to sort of expand the reach of the Jewish people. We're going to, he, he got his kingship by playing nice with the Roman authorities. So he was always sort of an enemy of the Jewish people and particularly of the chief council. Some contemporary historians of Herod I talk about how violent he was and how uh, in, later in his life he, he killed Three of his sons, they think, and a wife, and a wife's, one of his mother-in-laws. Apparently, even one of the stories is, when he was getting really late, almost near death, he brought a bunch of prominent men, Jewish men, and he gave the order, upon my death, kill these men, and that will ensure the kind of mourning I want across the nation. That's narcissism if there ever was any, right? Narcissism he couldn't even be there to see the effect of. This was a nasty Notorious king. When Herod died, it was his desire to have his sons that didn't get killed by him inherit the kingdom. So it gets distributed between three others. And that's the Herod that we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Herod Antipas. 
Now, I've got to make a comment that anytime I don't know how to pronounce a word, I listen to my ESV app off my phone, which right now is Kristen Getty, so I might use some Northern Irish pronunciations of some of these words I don't know. But if Kristen Getty can say it that way, I'll do my best as well. I, don't, I almost thought about faking a Northern Irish, but Andy Draycott would have gotten mad at me because it wouldn't have sounded good enough, not quite Northern Irish enough. Herod Antipas, also called Herod the Tetrarch because he was in charge of a third of the kingdom. Now, Tetrarch, that's a cool title, right? It's not, it's not as powerful as Monarch, not as wealthy as Oligarch, but give me a business card with Jason the Tetrarch on it. I'd take that. That sounds pretty cool, right? He's in charge of primarily the northern region where Galilee is, which is exactly why Pilate says, hey, Herod, he could rule on this. Herod shows up in the Bible a couple of times primarily for killing John the Baptist. He's got some weird, deviant sexual stuff going on, and John the Baptist calls him out for it. And then John the Baptist is killed for it, and then Luke 13 earlier, some Pharisees of all people come to Jesus and say, hey, Herod's trying to kill you. There's a rumor that Herod's out to kill you. So we know Herod has at least heard of Jesus. Jesus calls Herod that fox. You tell that fox. Here's where I'll be. This is what I'm doing, and now I'm going to go over here and do this. I think really interesting, Herod the Tetrarch, in two separate places, Luke as an author, once in Luke and one in Acts, mentions people that are related and know Herod quite well that are followers of Jesus. In Luke 8, there's a woman named Joanna who's the wife of Herod's household manager. That passage says that there's these women who are following and ministering, and it it makes a, a global statement, some of which had demons had been cast out of, and now we're followers of Jesus. So, If Herod's household manager's wife potentially was once demon-possessed and now is healed and is following Jesus, I'm guessing Herod would have heard that story. Acts 13, so same author Luke, later in Acts, mentions a lifelong friend of Herod who is now a believer in Jesus, following the way. Historians say Herod, the Tetrarch, is uh, not, he's just as ruthless, he's just as... Cruel as Herod the Great, just not as powerful. Maybe he's Herod the not-so-great. Herod the one-third is great. That's the Herod that we're dealing with here. And he's normally not in Jerusalem, but just like Pilate's normally not in Jerusalem, they both have come to Jerusalem because of the swell of the numbers of people in the city. There's also two Agrippas, Herod Agrippa in early Acts, Herod Agrippa II in later Acts. That's the one where he says to Paul, Paul, would you even have me become a Christian? Because Paul is presenting the gospel to him late in Acts. We're not worried about those Herods. So there's our Herodology. Here's what we know about Herod. Most of what we know about Herod from the Bible is from this exact passage. And it's a heartbreaking passage. It starts off and you're potentially, if you're reading this for the first time, you might even think, oh, this is, this is the guy. This is the guy that's going to help Jesus. This is the guy that's going to come along and make everything right. So in verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem at the time. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him. That sounds good. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to see Jesus. I long to see him. But pretty quickly, his motives come into play. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. All right? 
Sure, Herod's excited. Herod thinks, oh, the magic man, the magician, he's going to come. Herod thinks he's going to do some Galilee's got talent. Let's just bring him up. Let's see what he can do. Let's get some performance from him. And this is one of those times that I want to become my granddad and haul her out because Jesus says nothing. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Instead of him saying anything, who's there to fill in the, the white space? The chief priest, the chief priest and the scribes stood by accusing. And Herod's excitement and enthusiasm turns to mocking, to making fun of. Arraying him in splendid clothing. We don't know if that means purple necessarily or white, but either way, it's the, the, the clothes that a king would wear, something that Herod would have had a lot of left over. Dressed him up like a king so they could make fun of him. Send him back to Pilate. So if the religious leaders are guilty of blindness towards Jesus and they reject him because we don't want this kind of Messiah. Herod sees some truth in Jesus. He recognizes this person's got some power. This person's got some ability to do something, but that immediately turns into anger towards Jesus because Herod's like, this isn't what I wanted. I ordered a magician and I got this guy who doesn't say anything. It's not my, it's not what I'm looking for in an entertainer, in someone who will do what I ask him to do. I've, I've asked him to perform something. My expectations were that he would be able to do this. I even wonder if Herod believes Jesus could have done miracles. He chose not to, which is why you see this turn into mocking. And Pilate doesn't think Jesus is a supernatural person who can do these things, but I believe Herod from some of these things in the biblical account, it seems like he, he really believed Jesus could do it. He really wanted to see him do it. I don't think his heart would have been any more open had Jesus done it to accepting him. But nevertheless, Jesus doesn't perform, doesn't do what Herod asks, and Herod rejects, sends him away. Calls him not guilty, though. Look, we pick back up in 12. Now Jesus is back with Pilate. can almost imagine Pilate rolling his eyes when they come rolling back in. Like, ah, I thought I'd pass this off. I didn't want to have to deal with this. Later in the morning now, maybe he's had his breakfast. He's a little bit, little bit more prepared for it. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. He said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod. So now we have two separate judges weighing in, both coming to the same conclusion, not guilty. Pilate primarily in this passage by Luke is playing the role of voicing how unjust this entire situation is. At least five times. He's already done it once before he sends him to Herod. He registers it back with Herod. He is, and John even puts into the language that he's urgently pleading with these people. He's innocent. And I think there's a way to read this superficially at least, it kind of makes Pilate a, a sympathetic figure, like, oh, poor Pilate, he's trying to do what's right. He's, he's, he sees who Jesus is, and he's just caught up in this political mess, and he can't help but 
have to like cower in fear. And the way that he kind of gets presented in this passage is almost sort of weak and almost sort of someone who just gets pushed down. But that's not really who Pilate was historically. All of the contemporary historians use the words of Pilate constantly of vicious, angry. In fact, he loses his post not too many years after this by being overly vicious in the way that he handles this territory. So I I think Luke's not trying to present for us a poor Pilate. Pilate's trying to do what's right. I mean, it's it's sort of monstrous, isn't it? I find no guilt in this man, therefore I'm going to beat him up and then release him. Doesn't that kind of, it makes you kind of sick, doesn't it? It'd be like one of our teachers saying, oh, you didn't plagiarize this paper, but I'm going to flunk you anyway, and then I'm going to write a nice letter to your parents or something like that, right? It's like, but wait, wait, wait. If the judge is saying that I'm not guilty, why am I getting beaten? doesn't make any sense. So I don't think that Pilate here is in any better shape than Herod or in the religious leaders. There's some truth that Herod gets to, and that is the truth that he's innocent. Herod found that truth as well. But Pilate's missing the boat as well. And primarily it seems like he's missing the boat because he doesn't see Jesus as any sort of threat, really at all. Pilate, think about about how ridiculous this is from our perspective. Pilate says, I'm pretty important. I'm the ruler. This is an insignificant nobody, an insignificant nothing. He hasn't done anything wrong. There's no reason for him to die. When it's, it makes me think of Psalms 2, right? The rulers, almost like ants looking up at the father, kiss the son. And we have the son of God being judged by Pilate, flippantly treated as a political pawn. The Brabus character in this passage is interesting. Whereas in Matthew and Mark, we pick up that there's this custom that is, happens during this time where Pilate would release for them a prisoner. But in Luke, we don't get that background at all, and it's sort of a quick transition. I will therefore punish and release him, verse 16. 18, I said that's, yeah, 16. But they all cry out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. If we're just reading Luke alone, you're like, wait, why did they all all of a sudden just scream for Barabbas? Good thing we have the other gospel accounts to make a little bit of sense of this. This is the only time Barabbas is named in this story. And in some way, obviously, Barabbas is a very different character than the other three that we've already dealt with, right? Barabbas is in no way standing in judgment of Jesus and who he is. No, Barabbas is just in prison, apparently awaiting his own death sentence, we would imagine. But I think Luke's making it very clear that even though Barabbas is not in any way making a judgment about Jesus, he does bring the same thing that all the other characters bring to the situation, his guilt. And it might be the case that Barabbas is in the best place among them them because probably at least recognizes that he's guilty. Whereas the leaders are blind to their blindness, Herod's Desire for entertainment has 
blinded him to who the truth of Jesus is, and it seems like Pilate's just a lack of desire, lack of interest in even dealing with it. Particularly that place before Herod, and it happens with Pilate as well, where Jesus says nothing. We could pause and say, wait, wait, why doesn't Jesus say something? Why does he just choose to be quiet? That's the time I want to say, you show him, Jesus. In some places, I have it written down. In Matthew, I think it is, yeah, it's Matthew where Jesus says, this is where I, I lose my place in my notes and it's totally fine. Where Jesus responds to the Pharisees and then they, no one dares ask us any more questions, Matthew twenty two forty six. Jesus, why not do that now? You have the power to respond in such a way that they don't challenge you anymore. You've proven it before, but not here. Well, first of all, it shows an incredible lack of, uh, incredible ability of self-control. I would have an incredible lack of self-control. I don't know about you. I love to try to talk myself out of the messes I get myself into. I think myself very good at talking myself into and out of problems. Probably not as good as I think that I am, but I find it's my first defense. My first defense is to be defensive, literally, right? To defend myself, particularly in this situation. You've got these people over here. Oh, this is what he's doing. And this person asking you questions. And man, wouldn't I want to defend myself. And that's what I feel like in my heart I want to see from Jesus. But why doesn't Jesus? Well, among many reasons. One is from Isaiah 53 to fulfill the prophecy in verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. One of the reasons that Jesus opts for silence it's because that's the will of the Father. And that's really the word that really rings out to me in this whole passage is the very last word of the last verse in 25. Now Luke's being a fairly objective storyteller. He's telling everything that goes on. But I feel like this last verse is sort of like Luke's weighing in with his own sort of assessment of the situation because he says, he, obviously Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's just the will of the chief priests is the will that wins, it seems like. But Luke lets us know in his very next book that it's not merely the will of the chief priests that wins the day. In Acts 2, sermons preaching, you don't have to look it up right now, in verse 23, uh, in Peter's sermon he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We're seeing the passage of the lawless men, and it seems like the will that wins is the will of the lawless men, but Luke's telling us, no, that's not exactly true. This is the will of the Father, as Isaiah has already told us that it's the Father's will to crush him. Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And so what I'm seeing in myself, when I want Jesus to scream out, I want him to be defensive, I want him to defend himself, to show him, I want my will to win even in those situations. I don't want the Father's will. 
That's what I'm feeling when I'm reading these passages. I'm like, Jesus, do a miracle. Show them how awesome you are. Do something. You have the power to do it. We know you can do it. We believe that you can do it. And Jesus says, not my will, but my Father's will be done. Let's make some lessons learned from each of these people. I spent a little bit of time here. Um, what's the lesson from the chief priests? I think that the primary thing about the chief priests and the scribes is they're blind. They're blind to who Jesus is. Jesus, in his own teaching, talks about blindness. And I think that that can be applied to us here and now in a couple of different ways. One kind of blindness that some of us in this room might have, I think I've had it more times than I can imagine in my own life in the past, is blindness that comes from a lack of humility. It's sort of similar to the kind of blindness that the Pharisees and the, the council has, the Sadducees and the chief priests. They, they, they lack the humility to be willing to accept Jesus for who he is, which is why Jesus to the Pharisees, specifically in Matthew 22, 29, says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So how do we fight blindness that comes from a lack of humility? Through laying down our wills to what's in God's word. And maybe even being willing to recognize, okay, I think I understand certain things, but I'm always willing to be cut open, to open myself, all of my beliefs, to what the Bible says. Oh, Lord, help us with our blindness. Blindness is that sin. It's so hard to fight because you can't see it. It's really a treacherous sin to be fighting. Another kind of blindness, I think, comes, and that's a, that's a blindness that comes about out of, of a continual, unrepentant sin. There's a searing of the Spirit that comes about here, and there's a sort of blindness that comes about because you know what you're doing is sinful. You know that the Scriptures calls you to walk differently, but you're kind of like, oh, I'll just sort of do it later. I'll, I'll kind of correct this later. And if that's you, I encourage you to, to pray through Acts 8.22, at one point, uh, this sorcerer wants to buy the Holy Spirit. And they turn to him and say, repent, therefore, of this wickedness. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. It's possible for us to endure in unrepented sin to the point that it's impossible for us to forgive, to, to repent. Not because it's impossible for God to forgive us, but because our heart becomes so hard. We become so blind that we just don't care anymore. If you have blindness of either kind, go to God's word. Allow it to cut you. Allow it to, to, to thaw out your heart. What kind of lessons do we have from Herod? I think, I think there are a lot of us have some tendencies like Herod. I think a lot of us have met with Jesus at some point with initial excitement. Oh, man, I'm pumped. I'm pumped about Jesus. And then some sort of disappointment comes along the way. At some point, Jesus did not meet your expectations. And while you might not dress him up on a robe and send him back, you're at least disappointed. You're at least frustrated. It might even be angry. And this can come on really small things. Oh, God, I really studied for that test. I didn't do too well. I was so excited to have Jesus with me. But you let me down, Jesus. But it could also be really, really big things. Think about the Manson family here, and specifically Gary, who I taught in Sunday school. At the age that you are, Gary, 
it would be understandable for you to feel like, God, I know you could have healed my mom, but you didn't, and you let me down. This is one of these times that we, we have to struggle with this to realize, no, 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 not my will, but the Father's be done. That Jesus isn't here as a snake oil. Jesus isn't here to give us success in all the ways that we would line it up. And while Jesus has the power to do that, that's not what he's here to do. He's here to lay down his life for the sheep. What lessons do we have from Pilate? Pilate basically missed Jesus because it was inconvenient. Because he was preoccupied. He was busy. He had other goals. He had other objectives. Pilate's primary two, he had two things he had to do. He had to keep the tax money coming and keep the crowd from rising up and causing trouble. So Jesus was nothing more than an inconvenient pawn in play for how to keep the taxes coming and keep the crowd from uprising. And Pilate missed Jesus simply because it's an inconvenience. He's preoccupied. Some of us here this morning might be missing Jesus for the same reason. Maybe you're preoccupied. You're thinking about work. You're thinking about that new relationship. You're thinking about whatever new thing or old thing. Or maybe you're preoccupied because of past guilt. Whatever it is, you can be preoccupied to the point that you miss who Jesus is and what he's here to do. I haven't said a lot about Barabbas on purpose. What's the lesson from Barabbas? The lesson from Barabbas is Admit your guilt and come to Jesus. Let Jesus take your place. Man, this whole service is just, the, the theological term that we would have for this service has been such a reminder of Jesus as our substitute. Jesus taking our place. And Barabbas is such a good example of that. In fact, Barabbas only shows up in the gospel. We don't have any extra biblical evidence that Barabbas existed, and that puts some scholars, the ones that don't tend to believe all the Bible, they think maybe he was an invention because his name's really convenient. His name is son of a father. It seems like a made-up name to them, right? No, we know Barabbas is a historical person. Barabbas was guilty. Luke tells us what he was charged with. Matthew and Mark make it very clear. No, he was a murderer. In fact, I like to think if Pilate had brought Barabbas up and said, are you a murderer? Do you want to overthrow? Can you have a Barabbas would have had all kinds of things to say. You blankety blank right. Take my handcuffs off. I'll kill you right now. Right? That's who Barabbas was. And he knew that's who he was. That's what's beautiful about Barabbas, right? So I have all these other characters, so-called authorities, placing Jesus' life in the balance. You have a guilty man in a cell, awaiting his own death, probably aware that it would justly come to him. And at some point, someone came and said, hey, you get to go free. So when my kids, this was probably 10 years ago or so, at Grace, we do all kinds of great children's ministry activities, specifically around Christmas and Easter. And we used to have this event that we did for a number of years called Easter Walk, where the kids would come to the church and they would walk through seven different scenes. Andy Draycott helped with it, Scott helped with it, Eric Tusselman. I remember the first time I walked through and Scott was playing the role of Barabbas. And I've gotten the script here. 
It's pretty beautiful because the children would go through and they would have different characters explain, oh, Jesus came through and I'm the servant and I had the donkey. And that, that character would talk about the story of Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey. And after the death of Jesus in this story, it took about 30, 40 minutes, if I remember right, to go all the way through it, you'd come up on a, a character who was sort of dressed like he had just gotten out of prison and dirty. Eric told someone messed his hair all up. I was so jealous I didn't have any hair to mess up, but Eric made his hair dirty. And Barabbas would sit, and here's how Barabbas is. I can't read the whole script, but here's how it starts. My name is Barabbas, and I'm guilty of murder. And then in the script, it tells us great backstory of why Barabbas hates the Romans so much, and how he was so happy to murder them and to create an uprising, and he gets captured. And then in the script, it goes on, and some point he's sitting in his cell, and he talks about the death that awaits him. He knows he's going to be crucified, and he knows it's the just thing to do. And all of a sudden, someone opens up the door and says, you're free to go. And Barabbas says, what? How could that be? The soldier in the script, another man has been tried. You've been pardoned. You'll be killed on the cross, and he will be killed on the cross in your place. One guard explained, and he would not look me in the face. Right? This is all a... One person telling this story. Barabbas runs out of the jail cell. He's, he's going to escape, but there's something in him, and the way that this is written, obviously this is, we're, we're filling in the gaps from what we don't know from what the Bible says, but it makes sense, doesn't it, that Barabbas would be curious, who is this person and why, would, why is he dying for me? And so Barabbas in the narrative wants to kind of see this person, and he goes and he sees Jesus moving through the streets, and here's what Barabbas says. He must truly be evil, I thought, to have deserved such a beating first. Then Barabbas happens to catch a glimpse of Jesus' eye. And Barabbas says, I know the look of a guilty man. I know the look of a violent man. And this man is neither violent nor guilty. He's innocent. And it ends like this. I should not be alive. I don't deserve to be free, but I am. I am free only because he died for me. This is a beautiful script written based upon the truth, helping kids and even now us as adults to recognize this is the story of the gospel. We bring one thing, our guilt, to Jesus. We confess our blindness, we confess our idols of entertainment and our idols of preoccupi being preoccupied. And we bring that one thing that we have. Jesus, I know I am a jail cell, guilty to be killed because of my sin, but yet Jesus takes that punishment for me. I can't think of a better way to end any service, but particularly one when we're thinking about substitution and by taking the Lord's table. So the servers would go ahead and come and take their places while I give a few directions. Here's the good news about the table, right? This is a meal for sinners. This is a meal for Barabbas. This is a meal for Herod insofar as he's able to at least recognize his idol this is a meal for Pilate insofar as he's able to recognize his idol of being preoccupied. 
So here in a minute, we'll pray, we'll close. All of the stations are gluten-free. Come up. If you have children that are young that don't yet believe in Jesus, the, the servers can pray with you. If This is a family meal. This is a meal for those of us who like Barabbas, recognize that we're sinners and recognize that Jesus has stood in our place. If that's not you, we would ask that you not join us. It's not going to be at all awkward because it's kind of all, no one really knows who goes where. But if you're out there today and the Spirit is convicting you, convicting you of your blindness, opening your eyes to your selfishness and recognizing, helping you by the Spirit, recognize, I'm a sinner. I'm Barabbas. I need Jesus. I invite you to join us and come talk to me or someone else will be praying in the front. And finally, if some of you believe the Holy Spirit's probably convicting you, you're probably in that state right now of repeated, unconfessed sin that you're unwilling to let go of. I would admonish you, don't take the meal and drink and eat condemnation upon yourself. But on the flip side, give it away. Confess it. Trust Jesus and come and take and then come be prayed for so you can have release from whatever it is, these, these idols that hold us down. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are a good God. We are so grateful that Jesus came like the lamb, spoke no words, and received this unjust punishment so that we now can be clean, so that we now can have communion, have a meal with the holy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.